This is The Jewish Executive Project, a podcast that interviews inspiring and accomplished leaders in the world of business and entrepreneurship. Join veteran international businessman Mike Aaron and performance and leadership coach Rabbi Jacob Rupp, the executive director of H Minnesota, as they discuss what it means to lead through the lens of Jewish values. Ladies and gentlemen, we are so honored to have on Rose Schindler, who is a survivor of the Holocaust, survivor of Auschwitz, who has been spreading her story for decades uh, to increase awareness and spread her message of unbelievable um, hope, optimism, clarity, uh, the ability to be in the moment. We speak to someone who has seen truly the worst of humanity, and it's a very candid discussion about faith, about God, about the next generation, the power of the Jewish people. It's it's a heavy one, and uh, one that, I mean, the first time I heard her interviewed was, uh, made quite the impression on me, and it was such an honor to be able to share her story. She is the author of an amazing book, The Two Who Survived, and I just, I, I hope that this story provides you with as much inspiration as it provided Mike and me. So I just, as a, as a short, um backdrop rose the first time i i heard you speak was on the jocko podcast which is something that i've been following for many many years and when i saw that he had a holocaust survivor on i was very excited and i can't tell you i think i had tears streaming down my face for about three hours or about however long you he interviewed you for it was so deeply it was at first, I was excited to hear. I brought my son in to listen to Jocko try to pronounce all of the Yiddish names of your siblings. Um, <laughs> but, then, but then right away, it became very, very serious. So I, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you taking the time to be with Mike and myself today and to share a little bit about your experiences and the lessons that came from it. I'm glad I can still do it. Let me tell you, not too many of us are available for stuff like this. In fact... Um... Rose, I have a, a very good friend of mine's mother is Fanny Krasner. Oh, I know Fanny very well. Very well, right. And uh, also I'm just another She always says to me, if I was 20 years younger, I'd ask you to dance, but you're probably a bad dancer. She's <laughs> <is> right. <laughs> yeah, I know Fanny. I'm sorry, Mike, go ahead. No, one of the things that I, um, I'm so excited to be part of this podcast is is I feel like I get it, but I have four boys and please God, many generations to come and to have an authentic opportunity for them to understand what happened and to know not only about the treacherous times, but about the remarkable story of survival and rebuilding a nation is something that they need to know, and you know it directly from survivors. And Baruch Hashem, you had to tell it. I'm glad I can still do it. So, Rose, please share a little bit about, I guess the, the big question was watching the world in which you grew up disappear. And having suffered so tremendously in the process, please share if you could, I guess, how, how does a person begin to rebuild after something like that? How does a person stay sane in the process of watching everything slowly happen? And then perhaps tell us about some of the experience. I mean, just, just t tell us a little bit. How did you, what was it like for you as you, as you watched this, this horrific 
unspeakable tragedy unfold? First of all, it's, I was very young when this started, okay? Uh, I mean, I was probably nine years old in 1939 when uh, Hitler came into power, okay? So I really, and you know, in Europe, when you're a child, you're a child. Here today, a 10-year-old is so, so advanced in so many different ways, but not the way we lived. First of all, we lived in a village. We didn't have uh, you know, we, I, I didn't have any higher education than middle school, but even the middle school, I didn't have more than three and a half years of education because when Hitler came into power, all the Jewish kids in our village were not allowed to go to school anymore. So we really didn't have any idea what's going on. And we were so religious in Europe, believed in God so strongly that we never thought anything like this was ahead of us, okay? We just... Tell me more, tell me more about that. Huh? Tell me a little bit more about that, if you could. You mean that you just never expected it to happen, or no? no. no but, 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 but Rose, 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 you said something. You said something else first. You said we were so religious, right? Right. Can you combine that into the answer to Rabbi Rapp's question? Well, you we were so, so religious that we. Uh, yeah. I mean, we had kosher homes. We went to temple all the time. Uh, we. You know, we were strictly going according to the Bible, okay? There was no, no other way. And we believed in God so strongly. We never, I don't believe, even our parents and family, the rest of the family, I don't think anybody thought anything like this was ahead. Nobody realized that the world could be so, in such a bad shape that nobody even tried to help us. The whole world was silent while this was going on. Okay, so... Uh, as I said, we were, uh, as a young girl, we were very ignorant in a, about a lot of things. And even if there were bad news going on, the kids never knew about it, okay? It was always silent. So, uh, as I said, we just went like sheep to the slaughter. It came okay. upon you so quickly, is that what you're saying? It came very quickly. Well, first of all, it started in 39, okay? And... Uh, my father was a tailor. Uh, I don't know if you've read my, have you read my book? I have. Okay, my father was a tailor. He had a shop with several people working for him. And uh, so we, the first thing they did, they took all the Jewish businesses away from all the Jewish people. And most of the people in our town, in our village, we had maybe 1,500 people. I'm really not sure how many people we had, but we had 600 Jewish people living in our village, okay? and strictly orthodox. There was no two ways about it, okay? And we just, when this started out, me as a young kid, I had no idea what was going on. Even when they took us away, when we had, we had to leave our homes uh, in 1944, we, are not, we didn't leave before 1944. April of 1944, one day after Passover, you know, we had no information what was going on in the world either because we had no, we never had newspapers in our village. And maybe there were a couple of radios, but that was against the law in those days. Okay, so we had, we were like in a, in a, in, like in a prison. Our village was like in a prison. We were not allowed to leave. If anybody need, the only time somebody could leave if they were really sick. And uh, because we had no doctors in our village, okay. We had to go either to Munkhaj or Rungbar. Uh, we were prisoners of our, in, in our villages for about four years or so, okay? 
would would you also say that you were prisoners in your mind as well, meaning that? Well, my mind, no, because I didn't know what was going on. We were not told what's going on. We were just continuing to live as much as we could. Of course, things were not the same anymore during that time because all of a sudden, before we were leaders of these villages, leaders in town, most of the Jewish people were business people, okay? And all of a sudden, all the Jewish people were not first class. We were third class, and we had no rights for anything. Before, we were running the villages or towns. Not anymore. We, we just had to go along and do what we were told, and that's it. And we were hoping the war would end. Did some people leave, Rose? Did some families have the vision to leave and run away? They, we couldn't leave. No way. As far as I remember, I don't think anybody could leave after 1940. I really don't think so. Okay? So, uh, unless if they would leave in the middle of the night and they would run away, hopefully nobody catches them. Okay? Otherwise, we, uh, officially, we were not allowed to leave. So, when you ended up going into the camp, your entire family went with you? Absolutely. We, I had, we were eight children, uh, six girls and two boys, between the ages, I'm not exactly remember how old my younger, because I was in, I had three older, two older sisters and an older brother, and I had three younger sisters and a younger brother, okay? So, uh, we all, yes, we were all taken away, and it was terrible, absolutely terrible. We, we never imagined something so horrible was ahead of us, okay? I didn't anyway. We never talked about this. Our parents kept everything to themselves, okay? So as you, as you well, I, I suppose as, as someone that went through it, and, and how old were you when you were in the, the camp itself? I was 14. 14. We were so taken in 1944. We were yeah. taken away one, one day or maybe two days after Passover. So as someone that was going through that, and again, coming from an Orthodox home and from a very insulated village in the, you know, it was the Hungarian countryside, right? Right. Right. So as you, as you, as you saw all these horrific things, I think that one of the things that we as, as parents have to try to figure out again, and the, and the world has changed so much. I was seeing pictures of the Holocaust from a very young age. My daughter is very, she's, she's 12. She's very aware of all of the stuff going on in the world. What was that like for you seeing such, horrific evil up front for the first time? Was it like just your, your world came apart? I, I can't even put my, my we, head in your imagine. What was that like? We didn't watch and we, you know, uh, after we were liberated and we went home, okay, and nobody came home besides we were eight children, two or three of us survived. We, a lot of that stuff went out, went out of our minds. We didn't think about the past. We were looking to the future, okay? Wow. We knew what happened to everybody, but uh, there was nothing we could do. Uh, we just, uh, you know, looked for the future and we didn't even talk about the past because it was too horrible to talk about it. Okay. Was, was that a common mentality amongst the survivors? Or was yeah. it only the group? Most of us survivors, we never talked about the past, especially when we were married and we were raising children, okay? We had better things to do. Uh, I didn't start speaking about the Holocaust till uh, one of my sons, my son Steve was in uh, middle school at, uh, yeah. at here at Lewis Junior High, and he was in the uh, Anne Frank story. 
And the teacher found out that his parents are Holocaust survivors. That's when I started speaking about the Holocaust. Otherwise, we never talked about it in, in our household. We had better things to do. We were raising I have four kids, uh, busy doing this and that, and the Holocaust was the past for us. Rose, one of the things that was so tremendous about the book that I, I recall when you were kind of in the midst of, of the camps was, was someone told you about realizing that the rest of the world was crazy, not you. Can you, can you share a little bit about what that, what that statement was like for you as you were trying to kind of hold on your grasp of reality as you were going through such tremendously horrible situations? I don't remember about that uh, what you just said, I don't remember. Uh, uh, and if, if anybody would tell me anything, uh, the first many, many years we didn't discuss it, okay? But then we started talking about it and uh, a lot of people didn't believe what we were saying, but what could we do? We just told them, uh, I, remember, I remember every day we were in Auschwitz, how horrible it was, okay? Some of it you can't even describe. It is so unhuman. Well, the whole world was silent and nobody tried to help us. So, uh, how, do you, how do you rebuild at such a point like that? How do you, how do you rebuild? Put everything behind you. Put the past behind you. You just and move on. Move on. Uh, it's a horrible thing and we can't live with it every day. Otherwise, you couldn't, you couldn't live a normal life if you think about the past. And even, today, even today, okay. yeah. today is the 27th of July. And uh, today... My husband, I lost my husband three and a half years ago. Today would have been our 70th anniversary. I'm so sorry. July 27th. We were married in London. Okay. And um, it's a terrible day for me today. But anyway. May, may be blessed with very many good memories. May Amazing. We were, we were married 67 years. Beautiful. And I tell, me, I tell you, it's so lonesome to be alone. And it's so awful because I never I met him when I was 16. In the hospital, when I was in the hospital, I met Max. He was born in Germany. And in 1938, all the German Jews, all the Polish Jews who lived in Germany, they pushed across the border. Right before Kristallnacht, or maybe after Kristallnacht, okay? So... Um, did you guys share the experiences with each other or was it really no. like that you had to make a, you made a clean break and you just said, we are in this new world we had, and we're just going to go. We had better things to do. We I had better that. things to talk about than the past. Because every time we would start speaking about the past, we always ended up in tears and remembering our families. We all lost all our families. My family must have been, I would say, close, about 200 or more aunts and uncles and cousins and stuff like that. I think maybe a dozen of us survived the war, okay? Nobody else, no, we don't know about anybody else that came back after, after we were liberated. Well, I've always thought that there's two forms of optimism. There's practical optimism. I have to be optimistic that I can get food, water, shelter, medical for my family. That's practical optimism. And then there's always almost like a human optimism. I have to believe that I can love again, I can trust again, I can be loyal again. I understand the first side. You said, we didn't talk about the past, we had things to do. We had to get the practical optimism up and running. We had kids, we wanted to have a home. How about the other kind of optimism? 
the part where you actually start believing in human, humanity again. Is, is that possible? Did that ever finally happen? Well, you cannot stop thinking about humanity. <laughs> Humanities, uh, I, there's some things that sometimes I have a lot of questions to our God. Where was he when this was going on? He took a long vacation when we needed him mostly. But nobody was there to help us. We were just slot like, we were slot like animals. Nobody can imagine what we went through. But you know, we have to continue living. So you just put the past behind you and hope things will be all fine. We had no choice, okay? Believe me, a lot of people that survived the war, a lot of people committed suicide because they couldn't handle it. Yeah. Do, you, do you attribute the fact that you found Max and were able to move to, you know, move to San Diego and start your family? Was that, was that the way that you were able to kind of keep going? Was that? Well, we never kept, we always were positive about everything we were doing. Okay, I met Max when I was 16 years old. We were in a hostel in Scotland in Las Vegas. Maybe someday somebody will hear me talk. Okay, and we were there for about, and they were getting us ready to go to Israel, actually. That was our path, that was our future, is to go to Israel. It's about time we had our own country, so this should never happen again, okay? So we were in the hostel for about nine months, and then, the, you know, a lot of people are finding relatives in the United States, uh, South America, and whatever, because we were all orphans. None of our parents survived. All the parents with, chil with children, all the mothers with children, they went straight into the gas chamber when we came to Auschwitz. The only people uh, uh, Hitler saved were the people that could do slave labor, okay? So uh, we just had to look for the best things that's ahead of us. I mean, Rose, tell me what you tell your children and your grandchildren about people and humanity now. What do you tell them? We, we don't talk about that. It's not a very good question. That's not a good uh, subject for us, okay? Uh, I have actually never discussed with my grandkids what I went through, but they have seen me, of course, because I've, I've been speaking at schools for close to 50 years, okay? So they all know what's going on, and otherwise we just live a normal life, and that's it. We don't talk about the past. It's what, not a good subject. What, what, what about the advice you give them for the future? For the future? Well, they look at you and they say, Booby, you're 90 years old, you're acknowledged and respected around the world for who you are as a person. Give us some advice going forward about the world today and tomorrow. What advice can you give them? What, what, what would you tell them or what do you tell them? I, Mike, actually, I don't think too many of my grandkids ever came to, for, to me for advice. <laughs> well, I'm not a very educated person. I had three and a half years of education. And I just tell them to do what they want and do the best they can. And the future is ahead. And just hope for the best. That's all we can do. But I, I don't think I ever gave advice to any. I have nine grandchildren. They never asked me for my advice. <laughs> Maybe they figured I don't have enough knowledge about things. Maybe that's why they didn't ask me. But I always told them to do the best they can, hope for the best, and that's it. That's all there is. And get a good, all our grand, all our children. We made sure that they all went to college. 
okay? And uh, of course, uh, most survivors did that. They wanted to make sure that the kids do well in the future. So all my friends' kids, everybody had a good education. And then we leave it up to them to do the best they can. Well, as my, um, my grandfather, may his soul be blessed, he was uh, from Russia and he became an accomplished man. And he, he also dealt with a lot of stuff in his life. And he, when I used to ask him for advice, you know, he used to say to me, don't ask, just watch me. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good idea. That's and, a maybe, good idea. and maybe that's why your grandkids never had to come ask you for advice. We were hardworking the, people, okay? They had the blessing of watching you. Right. They watched, you, they watched your attitude, you and your husband's attitude. They don't have to ask for advice. They see it. They see the advice, right? Right. right. Well, that's true because we were very hard, uh, uh, both of us. And my kids, didn't, we, as I said, we never talked about the Holocaust till much later. And uh, we always gave them, a, you know, if they would ask us for advice, we would give them my husband would do that. It was an opportunity. I said, Max, you tell the kids if they want to know anything. All right? So Did you? My husband, he was also like nine years old when they were pushed across the border. So also we had like three, uh, three and a half years of education. But he was a very smart guy. So. Was, was having had that experience, I mean, one of just like, it's, it's such an interesting time that we live in nowadays because people have never seen you know, the average Jewish person, thank God, has never seen what, what you went through. And so the ideas like anxiety and frustration and understanding that there's so much lack of certainty in the world, once you came out of the camps, did that stuff still come up for you? Or after you've seen what you've seen, there was nothing, nothing really at that point was, was going to leave you discouraged? I don't think anything ever made me discouraged, Okay. I just continued every day and I always would say, if I have a bad day one day, the next day will be better, okay? Just make sure that you, you, you hope, you, hope you, you, know, you continue hoping that tomorrow is gonna to be better. Plus nobody can have a perfect life and not have a little problem in between, okay? That's part of life. But we worked very hard to do the best we could. My husband and I, we, were, we, we had no problem about things that we couldn't continue doing, okay? So, you, know, you know what I really appreciate about your, uh, your approach and your manner is a lot of people that are of your young age that have experienced all the things that you've experienced, they're very philosophical, very big picture about the philosophies of life and the world and human interactions. And what I keep hearing from you is a very simple concept. You wake up every day, you hope for the best, you aim for the best, and if the best doesn't come your way, you deal with what comes and you just hope for the next day being a better day. Absolutely, absolutely. No waste of mind, energy. Right. Well, listen, everything can be perfect all the time, okay? You have right. to be available to accept whatever comes your way. All right? You think about legacy like the idea of what you're teaching and you're talking like do, what what do you hope to accomplish by telling so many people around the world about your experience is it something that's like inspiring for jewish people about us going on is it like what do you what do you want to accomplish with all of the work that you do 
the whole, there's so many people in this world that don't have, have any idea what happened to us during the Second World War, okay? And the kids in school, they, they have the Holocaust lesson. They take the Holocaust, uh, uh, you know, they learn about the Holocaust and they are so, when I, when I speak to them, you cannot believe, I might have three, 400 kids in the room speaking. You could hear a pin drop because they have no idea what happened to us in those days. So uh, we just tell them to keep going and not ever give up hope. Once you have no hope, you're lost. So just hope for tomorrow is going to be better. Did that point ever, ever hit you? Did you ever have one of those moments where you almost lost all of your hope? I don't think so. I really don't. That's unbelievable. That's I really absolutely don't. unbelievable. Okay. First of all, I'm still, uh, I was raised like very orthodox. You know, I come from a very orthodox family. And I was always thinking, of course, after we were liberated, we don't believe as much as what we did before because we can't, cannot imagine how God allowed this to happen to us, okay? But I don't have the answer for that. But all we, all the only, only thing we can do is always hope that tomorrow is going to be better. Since you, I, 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 this, this popped up for me when I was listening to the conversation you had with Jocko about, about exactly that piece about not about growing up so, so committed and having so much clarity as, as we give our kids in, in an Orthodox family, like, you know, okay, this is, this is how the world works. And then seeing something like that and how it w- w- did, uh, even today, what's your, uh, hopefully it's not too personal a question, what's your, what's your relationship with God like now? And how do you think that that fits into the Jewish education that we provide? Is, it, is that important? Is that something that we need to talk about with our kids? Well, I tell you, I lost a lot of, I lost a lot of, uh, I don't know how to put it. God was not there when we needed him, right? And today, if you depend on God, maybe it won't happen. So you cannot depend on God all the time. You hope he's there, okay? But uh, I think this was terrible what happened to us while the whole world was silent. Nobody helped us, okay? And uh, I, I can't blame God for all this, but where was he? How could he allow something so horrible to happen? Killed millions of people just because they were born Jewish. Right. So, they, so, they were so, so strongly believed in our religion, okay? Strictly kosher homes, go to temple all the time, praying all the time, and this happens and nobody's there to help us. Um, a, few, a few years ago, I was in Israel, and I was with two families who had lost children to terrorist killers. And I got two different, both of them were shouting at me about God when they saw my kippah, screaming at me. <laughs> but I realized there was a difference between two of them. The one person didn't believe there was a God, nothing. The other person was angry at God. Right. He said to me with the kippah, it was the same words, but there was a difference. And I looked, when I figured that out, I looked at the person who was angry with God and I said, you and I are the same. I have just had enough blessings in my life to be thankful to God. And you, for factual reasons, have enough sorrows and pain in your life to be angry at God. 
but we're both believers in God. Would you say that that's you, that you're the person who's angry or dis disappointed in God? Well, I'm not going to say disappointed. Everybody has the right, but you see, we have to believe in something. That's another thing. Right. If you don't have something to believe in, where, where will you go? What, what are you going to do? So we do still believe in God, but... Uh, uh, you have questions. You have that's, questions. Part of life. that's part of life. We have to believe in something, okay? Too bad that this went, this all this happened to us and nobody was there to help us, but life continues and we have to hope for the best. I, I think that that piece is so crucial. That is something that, you know, as we go through all of this, you know, insecurity in the world, and again, compared to what you've seen, you know, the world that we, we see nowadays is, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty great, you know? Um, but... But that perspective, I think, is so crucial. So many people just sort of think everything's going to be okay. And when you see instability, and that allows you to sort of believe in yourself and allow you to push yourself to, to do whatever you have to do, that is such an empowering lesson in a lot of ways. And maybe, again, something we can think about is that God gives you the skills, so to speak, in some ways to, to pursue on. Because I look at you and it's a miracle raising, you know, raising four kids and have nine grandkids and living in San Diego. One great grandchild. What's one that? Great we have one great grandchild. One great grandchild. It's like, can you imagine thinking about being in Auschwitz? Rabbi, did you see Ben's smile? What an authentic smile. Yeah. <laughs> so your son Ben, he's got the most beautiful, authentic smile. Listen, we've got to hope. We, ha we can't live without hope. That's another thing, okay? If you don't have hope, what do you have? No matter, no matter what happened to us, we always have to have hope because that's part of life. I feel sorry for the people that have no hope. A lot of people really, they give up, they, they just don't think uh, anything about who's up there, okay? So listen, I have four kids, nine grandkids. All my kids, we belong to a synagogue, belonged from the time we started having uh, children, we belonged to a synagogue. They all went to Hebrew school. They were all bar mitzvah. And uh, my kids are married to Jewish partners, okay? So wow. it's not, uh, which is all very good, okay? That's the success story right there. Says, yes, okay. I think we did a good job raising our kids and we're all very proud of them. And they, they're, they all belong to a temple. Um, of course, it's not like being in Europe. Was completely different world, okay? So, but the thing is, you have to, you have to have something, you have to have hope, otherwise you cannot live without hope. I, I, do you think back, I mean, the, the for me, something that's, that comes out so strongly is that, you know, you can have a certain level of faith and then it gets tested so tremendously. And part of the beauty of, of Jewish history is that we, there's so much of it. And so we can sit with you and you can think about the, the, the home that your parents raised you in. And you'd think that, that something like the Holocaust would have just ended the religion right there. It would have ended the Jewish people right there. And here you are, you know, all these decades later and the Jewish people are stronger than ever. You have the, the, you know, the country of Israel, which is flourishing. You look around San Diego, LA, America. What's that like? Is it, is it, 
do you ever like think back about what it was like to walk out of Auschwitz and you know when you were going to go to Israel that Israel was was a nothing and you look at the world like what what is that like for you to see well actually we were planning on going to Israel because at the time we had our own country okay something we, we can well, what was, I mean what was that like the fact that you would go from Auschwitz and losing your whole family the fact that Jewish people would have their own country three years later what was that like for you tell me it, it, let me tell you uh, we were all hoping to go to Israel, actually. But there were so many problems in Israel that we were, and some of our friends said, we go to Israel, a lot of them got killed. They would take him off the ship and go straight into a military. Right. They all right. sent boys, okay? So uh, actually, my plan was to go to Israel. Uh, so, but then we found out that so many, there's so much killing going on, you know. And of course, when it became the state in 1948, which is like uh, we were already two over two years in England, okay, and a lot of us are have been offered, um, you know, certificates to come to America or Australia or New Zealand or whatever. So a lot of us decided to do it that way instead of going to Israel because too too many too many people were killed in Israel the first the first ten years or so after the war, okay. So. Um, I would still like to go to Israel, actually. <laughs> it's, never too, it's never too late. Never too late. I, I, if my kids would be willing to move to Israel with me, I would go tomorrow. You would really? Yes. What, what, that's, that's, what, what, I guess, you know, your can perspective. You imagine, can you imagine being an Israeli, walk on the streets, it's your own country, it's such an a wonderful feeling in your body, okay? You can call you a dirty Jew or make some bad remarks and stuff like that. Uh, if my kids would be willing to go, I would definitely go. Do you have that, do you have that, I guess one of the fascinating questions is, you know, there is sort of a rise or people speak a lot about kind of the rise of anti-Semitism. Is that something that bothers you or, or you've just become such a master of just living today and just trying to spread positivity that you don't, you don't want to, you don't, you don't spend time hearing about the bad stuff. Well, of course it bothers you. You can't help it, okay? If somebody makes some terrible remarks. You know, when we lived uh, in Allied Gardens, our first home was in Allied Gardens, and one of our neighbors and my kids would be playing with all the kids in the area, and one day one of the young girls, was probably maybe five, six years old, called my daughter a dirty Jew. And that really got to me, okay? We were so upset about this, and of course the whole family—they did not make—they did not make any efforts to come and apologize to us for what happened. But anyway, so uh, that's when things, you know, were pretty tough. About, and I was hoping that nothing like this happens again to any of my children. Okay, yeah. so uh, they were neighbors, and they were playing every day, and somebody says a comment, a word like that, and hey, you dirty Jew. So it was up to the parents. It was there. They must have been talking about this a lot at home. Absolutely. How else would a five, six-year-old know about this? Right. So. You know, Rose, never, oh, sorry, go ahead. you use the word hope a lot. You hope for, you had so much hope, and that's what got you over the past. That's it. That's when it. When people talk about hope, I often say to people about hope, and they'll say, hope for what? Hope for everything that's in your life. Yes, it's everything. No matter what you do, you have to have hope. If you don't have hope, it's not a good idea. It's a, you're down. Okay? 
because everything is not 100% perfect. You have to work very hard to make it perfect. How is that? By not giving up, okay? Was it? Keeping hope, keeping hope alive while surviving the Holocaust. That's my book. See this? Yeah. Yes. Keeping hope alive while surviving the Holocaust. If we would have given up hope in the, in the camp, we wouldn't be here. You have no idea what we went through in, in the camps, in Auschwitz. I mean, this, I was in Auschwitz and then we were in Freudenthal in, in uh, I don't know if it was Germany or Austria, but we were taken, took, I was Camp C uh, uh, in Auschwitz for four months because I was skin and bone and they would never select me to go to work. So, and every time they had selections to be taken to, because the reason they brought us there is for slave labor, okay? So uh, we would have selections all the time. And uh, the, first, uh, the first 10 days we were in Auschwitz, we didn't go for selection. We said, we have time, you know, that Auschwitz all started in 1942. There are thousands and thousands in the camp I was in. We had 30 barracks, every barrack had a thousand women. One barrack was a kitchen, one barrack was a bathroom. This place had so many people there and they would always come select people to go to factories to work. So, uh, how many people, every time they how many would people shared the toilets? How many people shared one toilet? Rose? Who said there was a toilet? Wasn't there? There was no toilet. One barrack, there was one barrack that had sinks and, and holes in the ground. Toilet in a bath in an Auschwitz? No way. This is a, a Zeilager, they called it, okay? I don't even remember going, I mean, all I know is that there was holes in the ground and there was things with cold water. And I was in Auschwitz for four months and I had the same clothes for four months. Can you imagine what uh, conditions we were in? Because this was a transitional camp. You come, you get selected and you leave. The only people that were behind leaving, staying in these camps are the ones that were not selected to go to work, okay? And uh, of course, people die daily. Every time you go out from the barrack, you'd see people on the electric fences. A lot of them couldn't handle it anymore. They would just go on the electric fence, put their fingers on their hand. 20 seconds later, they start blood coming out of their nose and they're dead. They would pick up hundreds and hundreds of people every day with their wagons. Okay, people just, you know, it's almost impossible to explain how horrible it was, okay? So, and every time they would come to our barracks to select people to go to factories to work, uh, the first three times they've been out to be selected and each time they would put me in the gas chamber line, all right? And I would, I would get out of the line and hopefully I wouldn't, if I would have been caught, they would have shot, shot me on the spot. But I was very lucky in that way. I would, and so after three, four times, you decided we're not going to go to get selected to work because they're not going to send me. And my father told us, because when we came in to Auschwitz, the next day, I went out of the barrack and I was walking around and I can see the conditions and the areas. You can't even explain how horrible it was. People hanging onto the electric fences, dead people on the walking areas, dead people everywhere. And... Some, and I was walking and uh, somebody's calling my name. Roisy, Roisy, that was my Jewish name. I said, my God, I knew I was popular. I didn't know I was so popular that somebody <laughs> in this God forsaken place. And I really mean that 
This was a God-forsaken place. My father, uh, you've, you've seen the picture of my father, right, in the book? Show us, show us, please. Yeah, well, it's probably, pages, probably didn't see it I yet. don't know what pages, but he was a tailor. He had a tailor shop. Wait a second. Just here. This is my father. Uh, on the left side with the beard and with my two cousins, okay? This picture was taken about, I would say, 1942, okay? This is how my father dressed every day, okay? So um, when he came to Auschwitz, what they did, they shaved, oh, here is another picture. Ben, your finger is on it. Yes. You see this? Very handsome very elegant, elegant and handsome. That's how he was, he was a tailor, he had a shop and he, uh, I would also show you the shop in there, but I can't uh, have to go through it. So, uh, and on the other, the, and that's my mother and father when they got married next to him. Wow. So, uh, anyway, so my father was, uh, this man, I'm in Auschwitz and Birkenau, I'm walking and looking around to see what's going on and stuff. And, uh, that was the first day, first day in Camp C, Zeilager, they call it. A man is calling my name, and I forget, my God, I knew I was popular, but I didn't know I was so popular that somebody should know me in this God-forsaken place. And I really mean that it was a God-forsaken place. He says, Roisy, Roisy, don't you recognize me? Because my father was already, sh this was an all-woman's camp, but for the, the day that we came, the next day, they were keeping them there temporarily because they were going to be sent out the next couple of days. So my father was, sh the sh you know, in rags and shaven, all the hair shaven on, the beard shaved. I mean, and he says, Roisy, Roisy, don't you recognize me? I said, oh my God, was my father. We kissed and we hugged. And he said, the first thing he said to me, where's your mother? And I said, I really don't, didn't know at that time, okay? And I said, I'm here with my two sisters. And my father said, he's here with my brother. They're here temporarily. They were already selected to go to a factory to work. So he was telling me, whatever you do, stay together because you have a much better chance of surviving. And then stay alive so you can tell the world what they're doing. Okay. So, uh, and then uh, I was alone and my father was alone and we made up to meet the next morning. So I brought my two sisters with me the next morning. And my father brought my brother, and he repeated the same thing. Whatever you do, stay together, and then stay alive so you can tell the world what they're doing. We said goodbye. I never saw my father and brother again. <coughs> they didn't make it, okay? So, uh, unfortunately, that life continued, and uh, what could we do? We, did, we just had to hope for the best. And that's, that's life, okay? So, you know, Auschwitz was so horrible, you can't even explain it. And the worst thing is that the whole world allowed this to happen. Nobody tried to help us. Yeah. Innocent people, just because we were Jewish. Unfortunately, you know, I had this conversation with a friend of mine recently, and I was saying to him that when the world is crazy with COVID and Corona and everything is turned upside down for people and that 
I said, as Jewish people, every single Saturday, we read about our history, a chapter in our history. And there's a reason why we're always nervous about the world and why we're nervous about our neighbors and all that is because history has taught us that we have to be nervous about the world. That in times when we need the world the most, the world has let us down for thousands of years. It wasn't just then. For thousands of years, we've realized at the end of the day, we have to watch for ourselves. Right. You You have to have hope. Do you know that in 1935 or 1936, I probably was maybe five, six years old, we had an epidemic in my, in my village. Oh, really? Children. My sister, I had a younger sister who was maybe, uh, uh, I don't know how old she was, actually, because this was probably 1935 or 36. Uh, it happened on Shabbos. Kids got sick. A whole bunch of kids in our village got sick. Not adults, just kids. They got, they got sick on, on Shabbos. They died by Wednesday. A whole bunch of them died by Wednesday. And one of them was my sister. Okay. So, and actually one, one other sister got very sick. Okay. But she survived. But the doctors, because doctors came after that to the town, they said uh, to my father, uh, her name was, uh, her name was uh, Blimchu, the Jewish name. Okay. Blimchu is a flower. Okay. A bleem. Anyway, she got sick, and, uh, but she survived this, this disease. And, and so my father said, we need to take her, because we had no doctors in, in my village. So my father uh, took my daughter to Budapest, and the doctors told him the same thing. There's no, I know you came here to get some help, but I don't think she'll make it. So the thing is, he came back, and he did everything he was told to do, she survived. And after that, you know what they did? You know, being that she survived this war, they gave her another name, a second name. In the Jewish religion, when somebody survives a horrible thing, they get a second name. You know that, right? Yeah, sure, sure. So, and she survived. And she was a beautiful girl, blonde. She was the only blonde. All of us had dark hair. She was the only one that had blonde hair and blue eyes. And we called her... We called her all kinds of names because we were so happy that, that she survived. survived. Uh, she was like a flower. Blimchu is like a flower. It was like a miracle that she survived. But wow. so many of the kids passed away. Probably almost, uh, I would say, at least 20 or 30 kids within three days. Okay. And one of my sisters was part of that. So... So as you, as you look around at, at the world today and with all the people that are following you and trying to inspire people to have hope, what are some of the most important things that you want to tell out of the audience, the people that are like, because it's, it's a hard time now and, and you've, you've, seen the, you've seen the worst of humanity and you know, thank God we're, we're not there, but people are under so much pressure and there's so much insecurity in the world today and it's parents and it's kids and it's, it's everybody. So what are some things that you think are the most important for us to keep in mind during these difficult times? Well, you just have to follow the rules. Don't go out without a mask. Okay. Okay. Because that's going to save you. All right. 
I don't know if they have, they have no medication to help you. Hopefully they'll come up with it within the next month or so. Probably from Israel. Take, I never thought it would take that long for them to come uh, to find uh, so many, so many uh, very smart people in this world. What's going on? How come they cannot find a cure for this disease? Because it's uh, man chants and God laughs, right? Right. Yeah, you're right. Nature, right. you know, this is nature, right? It's, well, uh, just hope that it will soon be over and we'll get over it and just life continues. All right? But uh, when you go outside, make sure you put a mask on. I shouldn't even say this because I myself go out and I don't put my mask on. <laughs> but I will stay five feet away from me. You know, I walk in my neighborhood. I tell you, all of a sudden, we all know each other in our neighborhoods now, okay? Before, we didn't know a lot of our neighbors. And it's a horrible thing that's happening, but it was kind of nice that we are meeting a lot of people and we are all hoping for, the, for this cure to be. Back, back to hope, right? Well, we have to have hope. You cannot, if you don't have hope, you cannot live. While, while you're on the line, I want to Google the dictionary definition of hope. Do you mind if I do that? No, go ahead. <laughs> I wonder what the definition is. I guess hope means somebody. I'd like to meet you guys sometime, okay? Oh, you will, we will. Here we go. So the definition of hope is a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. It's an optimistic state of mind that is based on an expectation of positive outcomes in one's life or the world at large. That's well, it. it's, a, it's a good thing. It's fine. Yeah, that's, that's your definition. Is that yeah, you don't have to know what it is that you need. What you're hoping is that it's going to be positive, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how we survive every, every problem in our lives. Okay? Yeah. Rose, the book is called Two Who Survived. Right. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much you. for sharing your story, the story of you and Max. It's an unbelievable inspiration. We want to wish you the best of health and happiness for you, for your family, and it would be such an inspiration to uh, to meet you next time we're back when I'm in San Diego. And, and uh, come uh, down to San Diego. You're very. Uh, you can even stay in my house. How is that? Thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. For more information or how to reach us, please follow us on social and reach out to jrupp at aish.edu.